Welcome to Beaver Lodge Alliance's sermon podcast. We're so glad to join you. This is the latest sermon. We pray that you would receive encouragement, exhortation, and that Jesus would speak to you through this sermon. Enjoy. Well, today's a good day. I don't know if you guys have noticed yet, but God is still in charge. Isn't that fantastic? Awesome. Well, summer, uh, summer is quickly leaving. <laughs> We've had some nice warm weather here last week and, and hopefully this week as well. But the days are getting shorter. Summer is going away. But summer is, uh, is the wedding season. Now, people get married all year round, but it seems like a lot of people get married in the summer. And hopefully you've been able to get out and about to a couple of weddings and hear some fantastic messages and celebrate with some people that were getting married. When I do weddings, I have kind of a handful of favorite themes that I go to uh, for the wedding message. My favorite is to take the couple to the passage in Genesis where God performed the very first wedding that was ever performed between Adam and Eve. He performed the wedding ceremony there, and when he had finished up with the wedding ceremony, God said this. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, here's what God says about Adam and Eve and about all husbands and wives. He says, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now the word used here, I, I, sorry, I have gum in my mouth, <laughs> and I do this all the time, so I'm just going to get rid of this. Because I, I have to say some Hebrew words. And you can't really say Hebrew words with gum in your mouth. So that's a, that's a good thing. So sorry about this. You just look away for a moment. <laughs> that was great. Wasn't that a good sound effect? All right. Stick that in my pocket. All right. Do you guys remember a few years ago when Hillary Johnstone came up and took the gum from me? It was, I put it in her, her hand. It was fantastic. Anyway, sorry. I need to stay focused here. So... God, God uh, has this passage. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, the, the word here that God uses in Genesis uh, for the word one in the Hebrew is the word echad. Okay, it's a fun word. It's up on the screen there. There you go, echad. Now, there's another word uh, that God could have used in this space that means singular one. It's, it's yahid, okay? He could have used that word. If he wanted to say that, that God is singular one, that would have been a better word. Uh, uh, sorry, if God, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Just a moment. If God wanted to use the word for singular one in this passage about husband and wife, uh, he could have used the word echid, but he didn't. He used the word echad. And echad works really well in this passage uh, because it doesn't mean singular one. It means unified one. It means unified one, which makes sense here, right? Because God is saying that uh, a man is united to his wife, and they become ichad, one unified flesh. Not one singular person. Not like there's a 50% of a person and a 50% of a person that come together, and now they're 100% of a person. But that 200% persons come together and become ichad, one unified flesh. It's a fantastic a little story here in scripture. And it's a fantastic wedding message. And here's why it's so interesting. Here's what I continue to teach if I teach this as a wedding. Because just a little while later in scripture, we get to a passage in Deuteronomy, the great Shema. 
And it's this passage that Israelites say every single day, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. The oneness of God set Israel apart from every other nation around them. Because all the other nations around them served a, a plethora of gods, many gods. But Israel served the one true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, interestingly, though, the word God uses back in that passage in Genesis, ehad, to describe a man and a woman coming together and being a unified one, is the same word that God uses here in Deuteronomy, ehad, to describe himself. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is ehad, unified one. Now, like we looked at earlier, if he wanted to mean singular one, he could have used the word yachid, which would have been a much better word to use here if he meant the singular one. But he didn't. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is echad, one, is, meant, is there on purpose to mean united. Oh, we as Christians believe in the Trinity, that God is one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the great Shema here, the hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, gives us hint, a hint to the united oneness as it uses, as God uses that word, echad. Gives us a hint towards the united oneness of God, which is reflected also in the first marriage where God said that husband and wife would come together, echad, in one united flesh. So marriage, therefore, two persons, one flesh, is an illustration which points us to the unique, united oneness of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, but one united God. And that's one of my favorite themes to talk about at weddings, is to point back to people how a man and woman becoming one mirrors and illustrates for us our triune God. Now, there are hundreds of these kind of moments all throughout the Old Testament. Moments that hint at the Trinity. Moments that hint at what's going to come. Passages of Scripture that seem to point us to the real truth that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, you have to understand that until Jesus came, the Jewish people had no concept of the Trinity. And when Jesus came, one of the blasphemies that he was accused of was calling himself the Son of God. When Jesus called himself the Son of God, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders went crazy about it. Because what Jesus was doing is he was equating himself with God, saying that I am equal to God when he said that he was God's Son. Because they, they believed in the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And here Jesus comes along saying something similar to, I am also God. And so that's one of the blasphemies that the Jewish people actually crucified Jesus for, is because he dared to claim that he was God's son. But Jesus, in his time here on earth, began to reveal to the Jewish people and to us the truth that God does indeed exist as the Trinity. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we can look back in the Old Testament and see all these little hints, little things in the Old Testament that kind of pointed us to this truth of the Trinity. Things that, of course, as the Jewish people went along, they, they did not want to believe. 
But now we look back at and we realize God was all along hinting at his triune nature. We read one of these in the Psalms just a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Psalm chapter 2, where King David speaks of the anointed one. If you guys remember this, it was back in the beginning of July. We talked about Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, David, King David, who is the author of that Psalm, speaks of the anointed one and even calls the anointed one God's son. So there's a little hint for the Jewish people that there's something strange going on here. There's something more to God than just God is one. There's something more in this. I told you in that sermon that the book of Psalms is a book that draws us to yearning for the coming of the Messiah, for the coming of the Messiah. And we find hints about the Trinity in the Psalms, and especially we find hints about the Trinity uh, in, in uh, the Messianic Psalms, which speak profoundly about the coming Messiah, that this Messiah was going to be somebody unexpected, somebody different. And Jesus actually points back to one of these Psalms, when he's speaking to the Pharisees about the triune nature of God. So here, let me draw you to that, that passage. It's in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 22. And here Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. And he says this, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? So he's he all of a sudden, right out of the gate, making a broad claim here. Because they knew what he was saying. Right? If you say, I am the son of God, you are equating yourself with God. So when Jesus says, I'm the son of God, he's equating himself with God, which was a blasphemy. But he asked the, the Pharisees, okay, let's talk about the Messiah. Whose son is he? It's a big question. Now, the Jewish people were waiting for the Messiah. They longed for the coming of the Messiah. But many of them believed that the Messiah was going to be just another normal person. Maybe a prophet like Elijah. Or maybe a great leader like Moses. They were looking for another normal human being, not God. The reigning theory at the time was that the Messiah was just another human like everybody else. So Jesus asked them, whose son is the Messiah? And the Pharisees answered as best as they could with their limited understanding. They say, the son of David, they reply. Because there's some truth in that. Jesus comes from the lineage of King David. He is, a, he is an ancestor, or, or David is an ancestor of Jesus. So they say, the son of David. So Jesus asked them a follow-up question. And he goes to the Psalms to, to ask them this question. So here's what Jesus said to them. How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? So this is directly quoting out of Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is one of the messianic psalms. Here's the passage that Jesus quotes. The Lord said to my Lord, it's Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This messianic psalm, another one of the psalms that hints at the Trinity, hints at something bigger about the Messiah than just a normal human being. Jesus uses this psalm here to reveal to the Pharisees the truth of the Trinity, something they should have been guessing at all along. So let's take a look at Psalm 110. So here's what Psalm 110 says. 
The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift up his head. So this, this psalm has got a ton of stuff in it. Like again, the psalms are poetry, and there's a lot of imagery in here. There's a lot of things in here. You can see some of the, the, the anger of the psalmist as he's looking at the enemies of God, and you can see some of the, the triune nature of God showing up in this psalm. There's way more in this psalm than we could possibly cover. So we're just going to actually cover two verses of this psalm. So I want to draw your attention first to that first that first verse that Jesus quotes in Matthew. So again, it's Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, what's with these two lords? What's going on here? David's not stuttering here. He's not saying, Lord, Lord. He just says, the Lord said to my Lord. There seem to be two people in this passage that are speaking to each other. So what's happening with this Lord or these two lords? Well, it's easier if you were able to look at this passage in the Hebrew. So we're going to do that. The first word, Lord, here is the Hebrew word Yahweh. Okay? Y-H-W-H. There were no vowels uh, in the Hebrew language, so they just had Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. Uh, And in many of your Bibles, you're going to see that the word Lord, um, that word is spelled out with all caps. You'll see this all through uh, the Old Testament. L-O-R-D, spelled out with all capital letters. The reason that's there is to signify that the word Lord is coming from the proper name for God, which is Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, which comes from the revelation of God to Moses. If you remember back in the beginning, God is speaking to Moses. Moses says, hey, what's your name? And God says, Yahweh, which is I am. And like I said, there's no vowels in the Hebrew language, and we've put vowels into the word because we love vowels. And we've made it look more like Yahweh. Okay, so we usually say the name of God as Yahweh. But in the original language of Hebrew, it's meant more like to sound like a breath out and a breath in. Like Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. Kind of like that, right? That's how God's name is supposed to sound, like breathing. And there's some imagery there, which is beautiful, that, that God is the, the, our breath. God is the one that gives us voice. God is the one that gives us life. Yahweh like that. So the first word Lord in that psalm is the word Yahweh. Now the second term, my Lord, it's put together. So it says the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord. It's the Hebrew word Adonai, which is often translated as master or Lord and is often used in reference to God. So the passage in Psalm 110, if we throw those Hebrew words in there, says Yahweh, said to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This is a messianic vision that David has of God speaking to himself. David's just watching this. He's watching this come together. He's writing this psalm out and he's watching this. Yahweh said to Adonai, 
This is what Jesus is referring to when he calls the Pharisees and says, whose son is the Messiah? David has a prophetic, messianic vision of God the Father, Yahweh, speaking to God the Son, Adonai. Isn't that awesome? It's exciting. It's super exciting. The Trinity shows up in this first verse of Psalm 110. One more exciting piece to this vision that David has is that it seems like this vision is not a vision. It's a vision of the future. For, for David, anyways. It's a vision of what's going to happen in the future. So look again at what it says. Yahweh said to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This thought of Adonai sitting at the right hand of Yahweh, that should sound familiar to you. Because it's a common topic in the New Testament. It's found in Hebrews chapter 1. It's found in Ephesians chapter 1. Found in 1 Corinthians 15. And in lots of other places, there's reference to this passage in Psalm 110. Speaking about the time between Jesus' ascension into heaven and the time when Jesus returns to rule as king of kings. So Jesus, you guys know the story. Jesus comes and he's born and he lives for 33 years. He dies on the cross. He's buried. He's resurrected. He spends 40 more days speaking to his disciples. And then he ascends into heaven. That's the beginning of the book of Acts. He ascends into heaven. Now we live in the time between that time when Jesus ascends into heaven and the time of what Revelation speaks about when Jesus comes back again. So we're somewhere in between the beginning of the book of Acts and the end of the book of Revelation. Somewhere in between those two spaces is where we exist right now. And at that space, what is Jesus doing? He is sitting at the right hand of the Father, waiting until his enemies are made a footstool to put under his feet. So David sees this picture a thousand years before Jesus comes into the earth. David sees this messianic vision of God speaking to himself, Yahweh speaking to Adonai, describing the time between Jesus' ascension and his return, where he is sitting at the right hand of the Father, awaiting God to put the enemies of Jesus under his feet. How cool is that? It's like a super cool passage, all tucked in to this one little verse. There's so much happening in this first verse of Psalm 110. Now, the, the New Testament writers pick up on this. That's why it's such a quoted verse in the New Testament. or such an alluded to verse in the New Testament because there's so much in there. Now, I told you a couple of weeks ago that the book of Psalms is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. The most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament is the book of Psalms. Do you know what the most quoted Psalm is? Anybody want to guess? Great. Psalm 23 is a good one, but it's Psalm 110, right where we're sitting. <laughs> it's Psalm 110. Psalm 23 is a good, pass, a good one too. Like it's quoted quite a bit, but Psalm 110 is the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament. And it's partly because of this first verse, because it shows up everywhere. And there's other places that as you read in the New Testament, you're going to see allusions. It doesn't quote the passage altogether, but there's allusions all over the New Testament to this first verse. So that's one of the reasons why it's the most quoted uh, Old Testament psalm in the New Testament. P uh, Jesus quotes it like we just read in, in the Gospels. Uh, Peter quotes it in Acts chapter 2 at the beginning of the, the New Testament church. Paul comes back to it many times in the epistles. It's all over the place. But this first verse isn't the only reason why this psalm is the most quoted in the New Testament. Because this psalm is action-packed. 
Down in verse 4, if you just go down to four verses, we have another very famous and extremely cool verse, and here it is. So Psalm 110, again, these, uh, the words Lord in here, the first one, the Lord, which is Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind, you, and it doesn't say Lord here, but this is implied, the same person that God is speaking to is Adonai, so you, Adonai, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, this is very exciting. As you read this passage, I don't know if you've heard of Melchizedek before, but this is a super exciting passage. Melchizedek is only mentioned in three places in the entire Bible. He's a guy. He's a person. He's only mentioned three times in the entire Bible. The, the first, or, or not the first, but right here in Psalm 110 that we just read. And I'm giving away points today. So for 50 points, who knows where the other two places in the Bible are that we find reference to Melchizedek? Does anybody know? Genesis, that's right. That's one of them. So that's the first time we hear about Melchizedek. Where else? Well, I think I heard Hebrews somewhere. Okay, that's right. So Hebrews. Okay, so Melchizedek is mentioned. We see him in Genesis. He's spoken about in Psalm 110, and he's spoken about in Hebrews chapters 5, 6, and 7. Okay, so here Psalms, so this Psalm 110 connects the Messiah or Adonai to Melchizedek. So the Psalm says that it's this Adonai we're talking about, this Messiah who is going to be like Melchizedek. Now the book of Hebrews mainly looks back and makes a ton of connections between Jesus and Melchizedek. And we don't have time to go through all of it. That's a hefty couple of chapters in the book of Hebrews. But I encourage you later, read Hebrews chapter 5, 6, and 7, because it's all about this connection between Jesus and Melchizedek. Okay? So you can look at that later. We're going to look back at the passage in Genesis so we can learn just who this Melchizedek is, who the Psalms connect to, or Psalm 110 connects to the Messiah, and who Hebrews connects to Jesus. Okay, so it's in Genesis chapter 14. I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but there's three main passages that you really need to be concerned about. The Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and Hebrews 5, 6, 7, okay? But let's look back at Genesis chapter 14. It's going to be on the screen, but if you are popping your Bibles open, let me just tell you what the background is here. So Genesis 14 is the time of Abraham. Now, at this point in Scripture, he's not named Abraham yet. He's still named Abram. So Abram, in Genesis chapter 14, has a nephew named Lot. And, and there's a big battle that happens, okay? Abram's not a part of it. Lot is a part of it, as well as a bunch of different kings are a part of this battle. Sodom, where Lot is living, as part of this battle. There's this giant battle. And Lot gets taken prisoner, along with a ton of other people and a ton of, 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 of riches and treasure and that kind of stuff. So in this battle, the kings that are arrayed with Sodom are, are defeated, and Lot, a bunch of people, and a bunch of wealth gets taken off uh, as possessions of this other kingdom. So Abram hears about it. He wants to rescue his nephew Lot, so he grabs his um, his mighty men, and they go off and do battle against this other kingdom, and they rescue. They rescue Lot, they rescue all the peoples, they rescue all the treasure, and they bring it all back and put, give, give the people back to Sodom, give the riches back to the different kings and the different places, and Abram goes home. When Abram gets back, the king of Sodom, where Lot lived, comes to meet Abram to say thank you. 
At the same time, there's another king who is not a part of the war. He's not mentioned as being a part of the war. He's a king who's not been referenced in Scripture yet. He's coming from a place that has not been talked about yet. It's, it's a place that we've never heard of before. A weird, strange king from a weird, strange place shows up, and it's the king of Salem, Melchizedek. So look at this passage now. This is what happens. Genesis chapter 14, starting in verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. This is the first time we hear about Melchizedek. It's just like, this is the whole story. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And then that's it. That's the only mention that we have of Melchizedek. Three little verses that are just like, you could almost blink and miss it. It's kind of like driving uh, past Hythe, right? You just drive past Hythe, you blink, and it's just gone, and where did it go, okay? This is the story here with Melchizedek. You blink and you miss this story. It's only three verses long. We don't hear again about Melchizedek until Psalm 110, and then again way later in the book of Hebrews. Actually, the, the, the Salem place shows up really briefly in Psalm 76, but you would you don't even have to blink to miss that. You could just like hiccup and you're done, okay? But it shows up in Psalm 76. And also some people believe that Salem is kind of a code word back here for what ends up becoming Jerusalem, okay? So they think that maybe Salem is Jerusalem kind of codenamed back here in the beginning of the Bible. We don't know all about that. That's just what people think. But this story about Melchizedek is so strange and comes right out of the blue and this completely disappears. But Psalm 110 says the Messiah will be like Melchizedek. And Hebrews picks up on this as well and says Jesus, the Messiah, is like Melchizedek. So we should actually look like who the heck is this Melchizedek? Well, first, Melchizedek is the king of Salem. Salem is the Hebrew word for peace, and the book of Hebrews makes a big deal about this. It's the Hebrew word for peace, so Melchizedek is the king of peace. Hebrews points out that like Melchizedek, Jesus is our king of peace. So that's a neat little thing there. And not only that, but Genesis also says that Melchizedek is a priest king. So it says that the, he's the king of, this, of Salem, and he's the priest of God Most High. Now in Jewish custom, you cannot be a priest king. There's still this, was this idea of a division between church and state. Not really, but sort of. The, the priestly line was separate from the kingly line, and you were not supposed to have uh, these two cross. There was not supposed to be a person who was a priest and a king. But here, uh, Melchizedek is a priest king. He plays both roles as both the king and the priest. And Hebrews makes a big deal about that. Hebrews talks about how Jesus is our king of peace. And he is our priest who brings us peace. But there's something else that's interesting about Melchizedek, the priest. Melchizedek is the priest of God Most High. Now, we read this passage thousands of years later than when it happened, right? But at the time, there was no mention of any kind of priesthood. There were no priests of God Most High at this time biblically. Like, we didn't hear about any of these. There's no priests at this time in Scripture that are priests of God Most High. 
Abram is likely one of the very first God followers. I mean, there's Adam and Eve, and there's Noah, and then there's Abram. Like, there's not much story to the Bible yet. There's not even a space yet for there to be this huge priesthood. Like, the priestly line in Israel doesn't come together for, like, several generations yet. But it seems that somehow there is this Melchizedek who is a priest of God Most High. That's, that, like, we, when we read that, we should pay attention to that because that's something that's out of the ordinary. It's strange. And not only that, do you, do you, did you see what Melchizedek brings to Abram? Look at this again. Genesis 14, 18, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now that... That doesn't show up much. Maybe it was a common custom, but it doesn't show up much in Scripture. When you see bread and wine put together, you need to take note. Now, it it could just be a coincidence, but likely it's not. Likely there's a reason why Melchizedek, king of Salem, brings out bread and wine here. This is like Jesus 101. Every time you see bread and wine, you should be thinking, I wonder if this is somehow connected to Jesus. Now, I'm not sure exactly what's happening here. There's much debate amongst biblical scholars about the bread and wine and about its significance, but there are many who see Melchizedek as a type of Christophany. Do you remember what a Christophany is? A Christophany is a pre-birth appearance of Jesus Christ. So Jesus, who, ex- who has existed throughout all of eternity, from the beginning of time to the end of time, who's existed before he was born on this earth, there are places in the Old Testament where he shows up. So the question that scholars ask is, is Melchizedek one of these Christophanies? For sure, Melchizedek is a foreshadowing of Jesus. There are many foreshadowings of Jesus in the Old Testament, like when Abraham goes to sacrifice his son Isaac, and instead of sacrificing his son Isaac, there is a ram in the thicket. That's a foreshadowing of Jesus. And there's another time that Moses' Passover lamb, it's a shadowing, a foreshadowing of Jesus. There's these pictures, these illustrations, these things throughout the Old Testament that point forward to Jesus. But there are also Christophanies where Jesus shows up in the Old Testament before his birth, like the fourth person that's in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom Nebuchadnezzar says looks like a son of the gods. People are pretty sure that that was a Christophany, a moment where Jesus showed up pre-birth in the Old Testament. And there are many scholars who think that this Melchizedek is also a Christophany, where it was Jesus himself who showed up as Melchizedek, bringing bread and wine and blessing Abram. Hebrews kind of hints at this. It speaks about Melchizedek having no beginning and no end. It's an interesting thing. But it's kind of just a theory at this point. We'll have to ask Jesus when we get into heaven. But the bread and the wine coming out at this moment in Genesis 14 is one of the reasons why people think that this is a Christophany. Another reason that people think this is possibly a Christophany is that Abram gives to Melchizedek a tithe, a tenth of everything from the spoils of war. He gives this to Melchizedek as a form of gratitude or a form of worship or something. People see this as proof that Melchizedek is a Christophany uh, more than what he seems because a tithe is what God said the people were supposed to give to him. So Abram gives to this Melchizedek a tithe, which is a strange thing. It's not totally out of the ordinary because the people brought their tithes also to the priests, but it's just kind of this interesting little thing in this story. 
Regardless of whether Melchizedek is merely a foreshadowing of Christ or, in fact, a Christophany, we can be sure from both Psalm 110 and the book of Hebrews that we are supposed to think about Jesus when we see Melchizedek. Jesus, who, like Melchizedek, is the priest-king. Jesus, who is the king of peace and the priest who brings us peace, who, as well, brings us the bread and the wine and ushers us into the kingdom. When we look at Psalm 110, we see these two really unique and exciting verses. The first verse, where Jesus points back to this in Matthew, uh, talking about whose son is the Messiah. That the Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to Adonai, God speaking to himself, Father speaking to Son. This amazing picture of the Trinity. And the book of Hebrews pointing us back to verse 4, which itself points us back to Genesis 14, where we see this Melchizedek who looks a lot like Jesus, our Messiah. There's so much treasure in just these couple verses from this small psalm. God has planted for us in this psalm and in many more places throughout the Old Testament these, these hints, these treasures, these moments to, to show the people who he is, to reveal more about himself to all of his creation. God, our God, is not an elusive God. He's not a God that hides. He's not a God that, that, that runs away from us. He's a God that hints He's a God that plants treasures. He's a God that, that reveals himself to us. He's a revelatory God. He's planted these exciting and wonderful little passages all over the Bible and in these Psalms to entice us, to excite us, and to draw us into looking for him and seeking him out. Not in a way to try to hide things from you so you wouldn't be able to find them, but in a way to encourage you to continue to look for him and see him in all kinds of places. There's another verse in, in the Old Testament that I, that I love. It's in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13. Here's what's written there by the prophet Jeremiah speaking God's words. You will seek me. This is God speaking. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. It's a good verse, right? Somebody's memorized that. That's good. When we look for God, we find him. And he has hidden things for us to find when we look with all of our heart. He's such a good father. I remember playing hide-and-go-seek with, with my kids. My kids loved this, and sometimes I would hide, sometimes they would hide. And, uh, and we'd go throughout the whole house. It'd be really exciting. If, if wintertime especially, we only have like three rooms to hide in, right? So you'd have to get really creative. I remember one time Gavin, um, he went and he hid, and I came looking for him, and I went into my, my bedroom, and there was this lump under the blankets. And I'm like, my goodness. He was probably like five, right? So I'm like, okay, this is going to be easy. So I'm doing the dad thing. I'm like, oh, where is he? Where is he? And I look in the bathroom. He, not in the bathroom. And I look under the bed. Not under the bed. And I look in the closet. Not in the closet. And then I sneak up on the lump, right? And I'm like, ha! And it's a pillow. <laughs> it was fantastic. He had staged it. He had set up these pillows together to make it look like he was there. And as I went, ha, he jumped out from another bedroom. It was hilarious. I just thought it was so genius as a five-year-old to figure this out. But we love playing hide-and-go-seek together. And there would be times that I would hide so well. You guys should just see. Like, I'm just a really good hider. I would hide so well that the kids would not be able to find me. And I'd hear them start to get frustrated. And so you know what I would do? I'd whistle. 
oh, I think he's in the bedroom. And they'd run in there, and they'd look around, they'd look around, they'd get frustrated, they'd start to walk out, and they'd whistle, oh, I heard him again. They'd run over, and they'd try to find me. And it was just this exciting thing, and I, and I would make myself very apparent. I'd make myself just really obvious to them so they could find me, because it was so exciting to find Dad. God wants to be found by us also. There's another verse that I, that I love that's related to this. It's in Isaiah 65. God says this, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I, here am I. Now, in context, it's a little bit of a rebuke. Israel had stopped looking for God. They'd kind of walked away from him. And God says, but I was still found by you. I still put myself in obvious places so you could find me. I still shouted, here am I, here am I. In my imagination, it's like being a kid who has stopped looking after being discouraged or frustrated or maybe just distracted and God peeking out around the corner, whistling a little bit. Woohoo, here I am, over here. Have you ever had a moment when you were kind of going along your own life you were not really paying attention to God. You were just doing your own thing. And all of a sudden you're like, there's God. And God just kind of leaned around a corner somewhere in your life and said, hey, here I am. Here I am. God is revealing himself to us in scripture, in nature, in your neighborhood, in your life right now. You may not be looking. You may be distracted, you may be discouraged or weary, maybe you're searching him out. God is right there with you, poking his head around the corner saying, here I am, here I am, come and find me. Why don't you stand with us here? I want to pray a blessing over you and we're going we're gonna to close in a song together and then I'll come up for a benediction. So Jesus, we just thank you that you have revealed yourself again and again and again through Scripture. God, you are such a revelatory God, and we're excited to get to know you. Would you help us, Lord? We know that you're already doing it, but we just want to be mindful of this. Would you help us to see you all over the place, whether we're searching for you in Scripture or we're searching for you in our neighborhood and our family? Wherever it is, would you help us to see you there, Lord, and be aware of the times you poke your head around the corner and say, hey, here I am. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you'd like more information about us or find out ways to contact us, visit our website at www.beaverlodgealliancechurch.com. We pray today that you would experience the love, presence, and power of Jesus Christ and then make him known.